Church in Savannah, Georgia. To find out more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now a message from the series Subjects from the Sermon on the Mount. Lord Jesus, I thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. And we're here this morning, not to exalt anyone else but you. And if we are, if we're here for ourselves this morning, Lord, I pray that just even now we would turn from that and seek to hear from you through your word, by your spirit. Lord, I pray that the same spirit that filled you to teach this lesson, your spirit, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, would just empower and fill me right now to speak truth, to speak your truth, to exalt your name, to proclaim your kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, to people who are so desperate, and so needy of you. Lord, I am broken and, and I am a sinner and I am not worthy to open your word, but yet you've called me to do so. And so I ask in faith that you will empower me to proclaim truth to your people. Oh God, just move through me into your people's hearts that we may be the church that, that lives these things out, the people that live these things out. And we give you the glory because it's in your son's name, Father, we pray. Amen. Nice. You guys can have a seat. Um, just one more quick announcement. I announced this earlier. And uh, we are, for those who've been here for a little bit, know that we're sending a team to Nicaragua in just a few weeks. Uh, August, uh, excuse me, October 1st, the team leaves. They'll be back in, in a week. They're going down to train and equip some leaders down in churches and do some evangelism. And one of our translators uh, who was down in Nicaragua, uh, his name is uh, Rafa, and his wife's name is um, uh, Darling, they're actually in the States right now, and they're, they're kind of trading places with us. They're, gonna, they're here for a, a month, kind of not doing support raising, but visiting some of their support. And they're actually going to be in Savannah next week. And um, this is a neat couple. They minister on several college campuses, a great young man. And he's going to speak in the Young Adults ABF next Sunday. But here's the opportunity for y'all. We could put him up in a hotel. That'd be great. But I would much rather have him stay with one of y'all if you guys will welcome. First service, someone came up and was like, yeah, we'll have him. Um, but he's going to be here three nights. He can stay with that family for three days. They would love it. But I would much rather him stay with three different families. Because you would, be, let me tell you, it wouldn't be them being blessed. It would be y'all being blessed. You're, they love kids. They're great with kids. If you had kids, I mean, it's just, they're, they're low maintenance. It's not like you're going to have to feed them filet mignon. They're going to have their own car. Um, but if you would like an opportunity just to kind of hear what's going on in Nicaragua with these folks, where we're going, the very village, she's from the very village that we're going to in just a few weeks. Come talk to me after church. First come, first serve. Um, just the way it is. So if you're in the front row and you're like in a dive, that's okay. Um, but if you would like that opportunity, let me tell you, it would bless you more than them. They could put them at the Holiday Inn Express, but they would love to stay with some folks that love Jesus and to hear from them. So it doesn't matter where you live. They don't care. The one bedroom, they, no kids, just very simple. Um, so if that's something that you would like to do, please come talk to me and we'd love to give you that privilege. And I do say privilege because it would be for y'all. So that's out there. Turn your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you, unless you're in the aisle. And then if you don't, there's no seat in front of you, so you can grab over across and, and grab a Bible. Matthew chapter 5. We began a brand new series last week, and we're looking at the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached, King Jesus. 
um, the Messiah. And he shows up in the book of Matthew and he, he shows up and he makes his headquarters in where? In Galilee. And Galilee would not be the place any other person would pick because it was seen as an unspiritual place. But that's where Messiah chooses. My headquarters is in Galilee. And he shows up and he starts preaching. The kingdom is here. Repent. And he goes to four men, four fishermen. And he calls them out of being fishermen. And he says, now you're going to follow me. Now you're going to be my disciples and catch men. And then we see just thousands of people because Jesus is healing and he's teaching and he's preaching. Following Jesus. Everywhere he goes, his fame is spreading Chapter 4 said, throughout the land. And so everywhere he goes, there's just masses. And so he looks around at the masses, and he looks at these 12 guys. He sits down, and he starts to teach these 12 guys. He wants to talk to these guys. Everyone's listening in, we're going to see. But he's addressing 12 men, his disciples. And what he's telling them in this sermon that we're going to look at next several months is, what does it mean to be one of my subjects? What does it mean to be in the kingdom? Living in 30 AD as a follower of the king. Living in 2011 as a follower of the king. In the future kingdom, what does it look like to be a follower of the king? How, does that, how should that impact us? And he is going to walk his way through that as the king of kings, to his 12 disciples. And we're going to get the privilege to kind of listen in over the next few months and just see what does he say to these guys because the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write these things down for us to follow. And so that's where we're going to be. But here's, here's what's interesting about Jesus is that he doesn't start where most of us would start. If I'm the king, I have some rules right up front. Like, you know, everyone has to now wear Philadelphia Phillies paraphernalia. And that's one rule number one. All right. Uh, sweet tea is now the national drink. Unsweet tea is illegal. I mean, these are some of my rules, right? If I'm the king, this is what's going to happen. And, and to be honest, some of us, we like rules. We would be very glad if Jesus shows up and says, here's 10 things to do. Do this and you'll be good to go. Some of us would really like it. The Pharisees, that, that was their deal. They love rules. But Jesus is going to say later in this very chapter, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and scribes, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. And what is he saying there? The external righteousness, we're not going to even talk about. And where he's going to start is not rules. He's going to start here in the heart. Because for Jesus, he cares more about who his disciples are than what they do. Because if you are who who he wants you to be, the, the, the fruit is going to come. Now, he's going to say some things, and he's going to give some instructions, but he's going to start out by working on the heart. And he's going to do so with what's called, famously now, the Beatitudes. They're the Beatitudes, and it's, they're called that because the first word in every verse is blessed or blessed. I don't know why we split those up. Blessed or blessed. It's the same. Blessed means as holier, I guess. But blessed, blessed, you'll hear me kind of say it both. Um, two syllables or one. I don't know. If you're a grammarian, you can email me why that is. But blessed is the first word of every verse. And the Latin word for blessed is beatus. So we get the beatitudes. It's no super spiritual reason. It's just Latin. Um, but in these beatitudes, and there's eight of them, he's going to tell us and his subjects, what, it, what does he want them to be in here? Okay? And so we're going to look at these. And, and let me just tell you right up front. The, the, as we look at these eight statements, I'm going to break all the rules of preaching. Okay? So my apologies to Dr. Reed and Richard, if you're listening. Um, I'm just telling you ahead of time. Because... The, the rule, number one rule of preaching is you always preach the paragraph. Preach the whole paragraph. Well, the problem with that is if we preach the whole paragraph, we're going to be rushing through these. And I, don't want, I want to spend some time. And so we're going to do kind of to be continued next week, just kind of letting you know ahead of time um, that we're going to be doing that. So this week ends, and then next week we'll come back. We're going to look at the first four this week, and we'll come back. Also understand this. When it comes to the Beatitudes, it's all or nothing. Okay? It's just all or nothing. It's like in my house... When there's one Oreo cookie left, 
Four children, two adults that are bigger and stronger than four children. What happens to that one Oreo cookie? Okay, you can't cut it up because that's not the way Oreos work. I mean, because you have to twist and you have to bite the inside. And you have to. You can't break that up. It has to be taken as a whole, right? It's, it's just the way it works with Oreos. That's the way it works with Beatitudes. You can't say, well, I'll be the mercy one and you be the gentle one and you be the pure one and I'll be the... No, 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 no. They go together. So sorry to Preaching Rules 101. We're in Savannah. We break rules in Savannah. And we're going to split them up over two weeks. And we're going to look at what Jesus says he wants his people to be as a whole. So let's jump in. Let's, let's jump in and see it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, because they're following him, right? He went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, very key, he sits down. And, then, and this is not Jesus trying to be cool. Oh, Andy Stanley sits down. I'm going to do this, right? Okay. What a rabbi did in those days when he was formally teaching, he would sit. If he's standing and walking, it's kind of informal teaching. Now, they, when they would read the scriptures, they would stand up. But when he's teaching, it's kind of like, oh, he's going to start teaching. So there's a formality here. He sits down. His disciples say, oh, he's about to teach. And so it says he sat down. His disciples come to him. His 12 guys are the ones that have been there. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, let me read it all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, are hung, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He starts off, bless, 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 bless. What's that mean? Now, that's a word that's thrown out a lot nowadays, bless, right? It's usually, I caught the touchdown pass, man, I'm just blessed. Right? I won the lottery, man, God, I'm just blessed, right? Something good happened, I got the job, I'm blessed. Now, if you lose or don't get the job, you're not blessed, right? But if you win, you're blessed. Is that what he's talking about? No, he's not. It's, it's a very rich Greek word, makarios, okay? It, some translations will say happy, which is not a bad translation, but because of the connotation of happy in our culture, happy is based on circumstances often or whatever. So it's, it's richer than that. The idea behind the word is this. Someone who is, is content or happy or satisfied, why? Because they have been approved by God. Because there's approval, because there's blessing by God, there is satisfaction, there is happiness, there is contentment. That's the idea of the word. It's very rich. Okay? And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to teach these disciples who are the objects of God's blessing. Who are the ones that are approved? Who are the ones that are really satisfied? And let me just tell you right up front, it's the exact opposite of what the world's going to say. The world's going to say the happier the rich, the happier the skinny, the happier the popular, the happier the who has this, who has big guns, whoever has whatever. Right? I asked my son a few weeks ago, he said, well, I want a million dollars, dad, my six-year-old. I said, a million dollars? What are you going to do with a million dollars? I'm going to buy an iPhone. I'm like, we are discipling well in our house with the, no Microsoft products. That's right. No droids in here. We're going iPhone, right? And so what are you going to do with an iPhone? I just buy all the apps in the world. Oh, man, that'd be great. But see, that, that's what he thinks is there's happy. No, Jesus is not going to say that's happy. That's content. He's going to go someplace exactly opposite. Okay. But he is the king. And so he, he's going to tell us. So let's look at what he says. Verse three. First one, blessed are the what? The poor in Spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's that talking about? There's many words for poor in the Bible. Okay, there's, there's the poor where, you know, I drive a 1984 Pinto. I'm poor. I'm a poor college student. Um, I'm down to my last thousand dollars poor. This is not that word. This poor is, I am completely broke. I have no place to live. I have no clothes. I have no food. I have nothing. It's used of the man named Lazarus who is begging outside of a rich man's gate and he's covered in sores and he has nothing. It's that poor. 
It's used of a widow who has two pennies left. She's a poor widow and she gives her two last two pennies to the temple. That's the poor we're talking about here. That's what he's discussing. Blessed are those people. But it's not materialism poor. It's not rich or bad, poor or good. What does he say? The poor, what's the prepositional phrase? When you're studying the Bible, always pay attention to those little prepositional phrases. I know seventh grade comes back in flashbacks. And you're like, ah, but they're important. Not the poor physically, the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. Not poor spirited. Not I'm always sitting in church like this. I'm sad. Not I'm grumpy. I'm a glass half empty guy. Not that. That's not what he's talking about. It's, it's those who are poor in spirit. Those who are spiritually bankrupt. The spiritual beggar. The person that recognizes the holiness, the righteousness, the purity of God. He sees his own sin and he says, I'm, I'm nothing. I have nothing. I can't get to God. I have no resources. There's no self-sufficiency, no self-righteousness, no arrogance. There's spiritual bankruptcy. I need you, God. I am empty. That's poor in spirit. That's what he's talking about. Now think about how that flies in the face, again, of the message of the culture. Right? What is the message of the culture? Blessed are the confident. Blessed are those who can handle it. Blessed are those who have self-esteem. Blessed are those who don't need anything. They got it all together. That's the blessed person. I mean, isn't that it? You have something within you that you can do it. Isn't Oprah built a kingdom on that? You go to the bookstore. What's the number one section? Self-help. Right? Self-esteem. That's that's the message. What's one of the most famous children's books? You all read it? The Little Engine that could. Of course he could. He's a little guy. We love that. You know, I think again. I think again. Woo! You know, that, yeah, get up the hill. I think I could. I thought I could. Woo! Isn't that great? But the more biblical book would be the little engine that couldn't, so he called someone to tow him. That's the biblical model. Right? That's, that's what we're talking about. It's not blessed as the one who can. It's blessed as the one who cannot. I'm, I'm empty. I'm spiritually broke. And this is where Jesus begins. Think about it. This is the first statement Jesus makes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that are empty, that are spiritually bankrupt. And why does he start there? Here's why. Because you can't even get into the kingdom unless this is you. There's no entrance into the kingdom. No one is going to be into the kingdom that thinks they ought to be there. You're like, oh, this is what I deserve. I should be here. No. What does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift not a result of works, lest any person, man, woman, child, boast. No one gets into the kingdom and says, I should be here. But that guy over there, he smells like smoke. He, he made it by the skin of his teeth. But I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I'm in the kingdom. No. And see, that's the paradox of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the, Jesus is preaching a sermon that in reality, no one can obey fully. He's telling them to do things that, that no one can do. That's the point. Because you realize it's really a summary of the Old Testament law. He's trying to show these Jews, you can't keep the law. You may think you can, but you can't. And so the only hope you have is to realize that you are broke and to cast yourself upon the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the whole reason the sermon's there. So you say, I can't do this. But by Christ, I can. That's why he's preaching it. That's what he's telling. And you have to come as a spiritual beggar. You have to come empty. 
And not just to get into the kingdom, as you're living in the kingdom. Lord Jesus, I cannot stay in this marriage apart from you. Lord Jesus, I cannot raise these children. I cannot beat this addiction. Lord Jesus, I cannot forgive that person. Lord Jesus, I can't do this ministry. Lord Jesus, I can't do anything. My job, I am broke apart from you. You have to move in me. That's it. That's poor of spirit. Without you, I am nothing. Without you. It's often said as a criticism of Christianity or Jesus. You know, Jesus is just a crutch for weak people. You know what our response to that is? Yep. He's not just the crutch. He's the wheelchair. He's the walker. He's the whole deal. Because no one's in the kingdom that doesn't cast themselves upon him and his grace and his love and his mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's, let's look at a couple of examples of this. I want to see what this looks like just fleshed out, even in the Gospels. We're going to be doing some flipping here. So hold your finger here. Turn a few chapters to the right to, to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When he, that's Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. Now, a centurion is a Roman soldier. He's the equivalent of modern-day captain in the army, okay? He's over a bunch of people. Now, remember, Rome is the conquering nation. They are the enemy. They are Gentiles. They're enemies, right? This guy is a Roman centurion. He is he's worse than a tax collector almost. So the Roman centurion came forward to Jesus and appeals to him and said, Lord, what does he call Jesus? Lord. A Jew from Nazareth? And you're calling him Lord? Are you kidding me? Aren't you in charge? Aren't you the Roman centurion? Yes. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, second time, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I say to you, with, with no one in Israel have I found faith. Here's a guy who's in charge. He's the boss. He's the conquering. He should be cocky. He should be arrogant. Do this, Jesus. And what does he say? Lord, I'm nothing. I'm not even worthy for you to come in my house. Poor in spirit. Flip to, the page, to a couple more pages to the right to Matthew chapter uh, 15. Matthew 15. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is Gentileville. This is Paganville. Okay, he's outside of Israel. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region. She's a Gentile now and she's a woman. She came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord. Again, she calls him Lord. Son of David, his messianic title. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer a word. And his disciples came and begged, saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. And he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Jesus, by the way, some people misunderstand this. He's not speaking down to this woman like she's just not worth anything and I'm not going to die for your sins and you're just some Gentile. His point is, look, I'm com- I came for the nation of Israel. Now he's, gonna, he's coming for the whole world, but specifically his message was for Israel who rejected it and then the whole world is brought in. So he's not, he's not being degrading to this woman. He's actually going to test her and her faith is going to be built and she's going to be a model. But he says, oh, I was only sent to Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Gentiles were considered dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She's saying, I'm not asking for a meal, Lord Jesus. I just want the crumbs from a dog for a dog gets. I'm, I'm, I know I'm a Gentile dog, but just please, 
please. And what does Jesus say? Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter is healed. Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Luke chapter 18, one more. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel. Maybe the best example of this in the, in the gospels, save Christ himself. Jesus telling a parable in verse 9, he says, He told this parable of someone who trusted himself, that were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, he's the pastor, he's the deacon, he's the guy in charge, right? And the other a tax collector, the most despicable, evil person in the sight of the Jew. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But notice what Jesus says the, 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 the tax collector does. But the tax collector, standing far off, doesn't even get close, would not lift his eyes to heaven, but beats his breast saying, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Who went home forgiven? The poor in spirit one. The one who understood he was nothing. Not the one who's praying his spiritual resume. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And why are they blessed? Go back to Matthew 5. Why does Jesus say they're blessed? Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the tense of the verb now. Tenses of verbs are very important. He doesn't say theirs will be. He says theirs is right now. Kingdom of heaven belongs to these people right now. They are heirs. They are children of God. They are mine. Theirs belongs the kingdom. And that's a great statement from the king of kings, isn't it? That you, if this is you, the kingdom is meant for you. It is yours. It is your belonging right now. What a promise, right? And, and again, it's just not church. This is not just how we get into the kingdom. This is how we live in the kingdom. He has showed you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord desires of you to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, Right? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Thou wilt not despise, David says. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. How many times throughout the scripture, the person walks with God humbly, gently, poor in spirit. This is how we live. And this is why, and it comes up again and again, and I'm going to keep saying as long as the text alludes to it. This is why comparison with other Christians and other people is so wretched and evil. Because when you're looking over there at that person, you will always find someone that is worse than you. I can't believe them. I mean, I'm proud, but woo! Uh, that's, they're, they're worse than me. I can't believe my kids are bad, but not like their kids. I watch some bad things on TV, but I would never go see that movie. Their church, they got a bunch of knuckleheads. We got a bunch of knuckleheads in our church, but that church is like triple the knuckleheads. Whatever it is. And you will always find someone that is worse than you because that's the nature of our heart. And, and that's why there's no reason to look aside. There's only one place to look. That's to look to the Lord Jesus. And when you do, you will be like Isaiah who falls on his face and says what? I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell with a bunch of unclean lip people. Or Peter who doesn't believe Jesus and finally when he does, he sees Jesus do this miracle and he says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. See, that's poor in spirit. That's what we're talking about. 
That's what we want. That's what's blessed. C.S. Lewis, I found a great quote, says this. He says, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel good, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Poor in spirit. When you're in the presence of God, when you're looking at the Savior, the blessed Savior, what what are you thinking about else? Just Him. If you're truly thinking about Him. That's the poor in spirit. And Jesus says, blessed. Right off the bat. That's who I'm getting behind. That's who I'm approving. That's who I'm blessing. That's who's content. That's where we want to start. That's where we want to start, church. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because we have nothing. Verse 4, let's continue. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now that sounds kind of like an oxymoron, right? Happy are the sad? Blessed are the mourn? You know an oxymoron, two words that are next to each other that, that, that are exactly the opposite. Jumbo shrimp, act naturally, uh, country music, Microsoft, Microsoft works. You know, these are oxymorons, right? Doesn't happy, sad, these kind of sound like it. So what does Jesus mean? Is he saying again that we should just walk around crying all the time? He's, he's obviously not saying that because number one, Jesus didn't do that. Okay? And, and there's multiple scriptures we can go through from Genesis to Revelation that talk about the joy of God's people. A joyful heart is good medicine, the Proverbs say. Consider it all joy. Make my joy complete, John says. Jesus tells a parable about a man who discovers the kingdom and he joyfully sells everything. So Jesus is not saying walk around glass half empty, always miserable, always mourning, always sad. He can't be saying that because he says otherwise that that's not supposed to be the case. So what is he talking about here? Blessed are those who mourn. I think you have to look at the example of Christ's life to find out what he's talking about. And if you study the Gospels in the entirety, there is two events in Jesus' life or his ministry on earth, where he cries, where he is literally brought to tears, where he mourns. One is when his buddy Lazarus dies. Secondly, is on Palm Sunday when he is a week from the crucifixion and he's riding on his donkey into Jerusalem and he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps and says, Jerusalem, if you only would have known why I'm here. Because he knows they're going to kill him. They're going to reject him. And he knows 40 years later, he's going to, they're going to destroy the city and there's not going to be a stone unturned. He knows and he mourns. And if you look at both passages, Jesus is mourning over the exact same thing. He's not mourning for uh, Lazarus because he's dead. In fact, he's dead because Jesus waited to go heal him. He purposely didn't go. He purposely allows Lazarus to die. And he knows he's going to raise him from the dead. So he's not crying because he's dead. Why is he crying? Because he sees the effects of sin and depravity on his buddy and on his sisters who are weeping and crying and mourning and saying, Jesus, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. And he's not mourning because he knows he's about to come out of the grave. But he sees the effect of sin and depravity. And it's the same thing with Jerusalem. Those who's coming to die, those he loves, those he's there to save, reject him. And it's the fallenness that he's weeping over and he's mourning over. And if the king is the one who mourns over these things, then guess what he wants his subjects to do? To mourn as well. And practically speaking, I think there's two areas that this applies to us. Number one, just generally, when you look at the fallen world, 
Sometimes it should break your heart. I mean, how could you not last week where we're watching 9-11 all over the news and we see guys jumping out of windows and, and, and you interviews with wives and children that never met their dad. How can that not make you mourn and just think, what in the world is going on in this place, in this world? I mean, how can you not go to the soccer game and see this dad yelling at his six-year-old kid because he let a goal or a ball go by him and that not make you mourn? How can you not hear about a miscarriage or a divorce or just a tsunami or an earthquake and you just say, Lord, when, when are you coming back? And there's a side where God's people, that, that when they see this the brokenness and the, and the depravity in the world, there's a side that it should say, make us long for the Lord Jesus. But there's another side, a personal side here that I think we miss a lot. And it's mourning over whose sin? Our own sin. There's a, there's a mourning over the fact that, that you're the one that sent Jesus to the cross. And even as a Christian, when you're forgiven, when you sin again, that there's a mourning and you say, oh, I didn't want, it's not who I am. It's not who I want to be. And I think the problem in the church today is we have ceased to mourn over sin, our own sin. What do we do instead of mourning? We entertain ourselves with it. We watch it at eight o'clock at night on TV and we laugh. At, at things that fill our minds. We laugh at the depravity and we laugh at a show that exalts homosexuality and we laugh at these things, at gratuitous violence and we laugh when someone curses or tells a funny joke that's dirty. And we laugh. I can promise you this, the Lord Jesus was not laughing when they nailed him to the cross and he wasn't laughing when they whipped his back and he's not laughing in heaven over one sin. And there's a point where the people of God need to mourn over their own sin. Because if you're not mourning over it, I can tell you you're not repenting of it. Blessed are those who what? Who mourn. Who mourn. And, and the tense in the verse, in, in verse 4, is in the present tense. So you could translate it. Blessed are those who continually mourn. Who, who constantly, Luke's in his parallel version says, blessed are those who weep now, who mourn now. And why are they blessed? What is the promise? What does he say? Because if you are the one who mourns, guess what's going to happen? you're going to be comforted. And who's going to comfort you? This is what grammarians call a divine passive. It's the passive voice. So you're not comforting yourself. Someone is comforting you. Who is it? It's the Lord Jesus himself. The word parakaleo, the verb that's used here, it's used of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, if you've heard him called, the comforter. If you are one who mourns and says, Lord Jesus, do something, move, forgive. If you, are, that is you, what is the great promise? That you will be comforted by the God of all comfort, as Paul calls him. The Lord Jesus himself. And there's a very practical side where he will comfort you now because if there's a failing on your sin, you don't lose your salvation. Once you are saved, you're always saved. But when there's this, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. He says, I love you. There's nothing going to separate me from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. There's no condemnation here. There's nothing but love. You can't make me love you less. I will never leave you, forsake you. Even if you will walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I'll be there. So there's a very real sense of comfort by the Holy Spirit now. But the ultimate fulfillment and promise, it's a future tense, is they will be, they shall be in the future comforted. Because Revelation 21 says, you know what? Jesus himself will wipe away every tear. And there'll be no more 9-11. And there'll be no more marriage breaking up. And there'll be no more dads yelling at their kids on the soccer field. And there'll be no more. And Jesus will make all wrongs right. The promise, they will be comforted forever and ever. What a great promise from the king for those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. He continues, verse 5, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meek? Meek is not weak. 
Mika is not a personality, a happy-go-lucky, you know, cute little snuggle fabric softener guy. You know, that's not meek. It's not, it's not just happy, oh, every happy all the time. Happy all the time. That's a Labrador. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Okay, the word meek is a word in the Greek that means strength under control. Outside of the Bible, it's used of a, of a war horse who is bridled for war that is powerful and mighty, but he's under control. Why is he under control? Because there's a bridle and there's a bit. Strength under control. That is the idea. And, and, and here's how it looks and just in, in normal terms. I got three boys, one girl. If the boys go out, I got 11, 6, and 3. We go out and play some football. Okay? Let's be honest. Dad's going to win if dad wants to win. And then to kick off the dad, you know, there's the three-year-old. Kick him out of the way. Right? There's the six-year-old. And then there's the 11-year-old. You know, I, I, dad wins. Heisman. You know, that's the way it works. If I want to win, I can win. Right? Okay? But what, what how, those who are dads know how it works, really. Okay? You get the ball. And then where's the three-year-old? He's grabbing your leg. And you're, you're, oh, and you're, oh, and then the six-year-old hits you, and, oh, and you can pretend, and, and then the 11-year-old tackles you, and you go down, and you might even fumble the ball, and, and oh, look what you did. I have the strength to win, but it's under control. It's appropriate, right? I don't just go knocking the three-year-old. That's how we roll in this house, all right? You know, that's not how it works, okay? Strength under control, and that's the idea. That's what he's saying here. And, and, and it's very, very interesting in the Gospels. Jesus ne- only one time describes himself. Okay, one time he says, this is what I'm like. He doesn't say I'm holy, holy, holy. He doesn't say I'm almighty, powerful, all these things. You know what? The one time in the Gospels where Jesus actually describes himself, he says, he says come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Right? You know that passage. And then he closes it by saying this. For I am gentle, meek, same word, and lowly of heart. When Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, describes himself, what does he say? I'm meek. I am strength under control. And that makes a lot of sense because at any point he says, I could call a million angels and wipe everybody out, but I'm going to go to the cross anyway. Strength under control. And so he says, blessed are those who are meek, who are strength under control, who are gentle, right? And there's an allusion here. If you read Psalm 37, this is an allusion to Psalm 37. He says, they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37 says, they shall inherit the land. But he's alluding to that. And if you go, we don't have time, but if you go back and read that Psalm, it describes what the meek look like. The meek is someone who waits for God to deal with it and doesn't take it into his own hands. The, the meek is someone who trusts that God will deal and vengeance is his and is patient and just trusting and delighting in the Lord and let everything him handle it's that the meek is someone who's not overly impressed with their own self. They're just waiting patiently on the Lord. You know, the, the second meekest guy in all the scriptures next to the Lord Jesus was a man named Moses. In fact, there's a verse in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, that says Moses, and he's writing this, was the meekest man who ever lived. And if you're writing that and it's scripture and it's true, you have to be. I mean, that's, it sounds like an arrogant statement, but the Spirit of God's having him write that Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. And in the context of that chapter, if you go and read what happens, Moses' first wife dies. And so he takes another wife, an Ethiopian woman. And his sister Miriam doesn't like it. And she starts talking smack to Moses and said, Who is Moses? God speaks to me just like Moses. Gets Aaron, her brother, in on the whole deal. And God brings a cloud down and gets this little family, Moses and his, his siblings, and, and they get in a little meeting in the cloud. And God says, 
With normal prophets, I speak in visions and I speak in dreams. But with Moses, I speak face to face. So who are you, Miriam, to talk about my servant, Moses? And she's like, ooh. And the cloud goes up and she's leprous. She's a leper, which was a death sentence. And what does Moses do? He's like, "Uh uh-huh. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) What Moses does is he gets on his face and says, God, heal her. Heal her. And God says, I will, but it's going to be a week. She's outside for a week. But in his meekness, he's not looking for vengeance. He's not looking for justice. He, He wants her who rebuked him and was questioning him and doubting him. He wants her healed. Meekness. Gentleness. And I was thinking about meekness doesn't get a lot of props. We like the go-getters. We don't like the gentle. Blessed are the go-getters, the ones who go out there and do it, right? But I can't think of a more Christ-like character than meekness, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept doing what? Entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So when you are reviled or slandered or someone lies about you or this church, if you go and respond, that is not meek. You wait patiently on God to deal with it. If you're the one who's like, you missed, you're not getting your fair share and they are. And you're like, oh, I'm going to go make sure I get my fair share. I'm going to make sure they know what I, what I think. I'm going to make sure that I get what's right. It's not meekness. You know, meekness is I could be served, but instead I'm going to serve. Don't they know who I am in the, in, in the world out there? I'm important. I got this many people under me. And that person is faithfully serving quietly in the nursery or mopping floors because they're meek. See, I don't know if there's more personality and more character trait that's more like Christ than meekness, which makes a lot of sense because this is one of the few beatitudes that actually make it into the fruit of the Spirit. What's the result of walking by the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, praos, same Greek word. When you are controlled by the Spirit, what's the result? Meek, right? Meekness. This is what God wants from his and what does he say the, 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 the blessing is? Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall what? Inherit the earth. Inheritance is good, right? I mean, that's like inherit the earth. I joke with my mom. When dad goes, I get the Jeep and the M16 and I'm happy. I mean, that's the only two things I get, dad, but I'll take them. All right. The, that's my inheritance, right? This is what they get me. What does the meek get? Oh, just the earth. Nothing big. You know, some China and the earth. The earth, the kingdom is your, it belongs to you at the bottom of the deed. Bill Fowler, whoever you are, the meek inherit in the kingdom, the earth. Talk about blessing. I mean, what are you, an iPhone or the earth? I mean, iPhones are good. But the earth, a little money or the earth, a little fame, a little success, the earth. And in 80 million, zillion, trillion years, I promise you, those who are meek will not regret because the fullness of their inheritance will still be there. The meek inherit the earth. That's what Jesus says. That's the promise. How grateful for those who learned that lesson for their 70, 80, 90 years here in the eternity of the kingdom, the meek. One more, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? They'll be satisfied. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are righteous. 
Does it? It says those who what? Hunger and thirst. Interesting verbs, right? Think about those verbs. Just the basic necessities of life. Hunger and thirst. And when you're hungry, and some of you are, it's 1210. I mean, you're thinking steak. You're thinking, you know, you're thinking Carrie Hilliard's barberitas. I know. Right now, you're still thinking about it. And, and what happens when you're hungry and you're thirsty? Man, that, that drives everything, doesn't it? I mean, you don't even care. I just want to eat. Remember the story of Esau and Jacob in the Old Testament? And Esau is, comes in, he's just famished. And Jacob says, I'll make you some chunky soup, but it's going to cost you your birthright. Oh, just give me the chunky soup. It costs you your birthright. Fine, give me the chunky soup. And he does. He's so hungry, he doesn't even care. And he sells his birthright for a can of chunky soup. But that's the idea behind hunger and thirst. When you are hungry and you're driving in this in the hot and now Krispy Kreme, you're like, oh, and it's just that drives what you want. There's a desperation. And what Jesus is saying is not those who hunger and thirst for for Krispy Kreme, for chunky, for chunky soup, for, for what? For righteousness. And when we're talking righteousness here, we're talking about practical righteousness, not salvation for for being Christ like. Later in 633, he's going to say, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. He's going to say in the Lord's prayer that thy will be done. That's the idea here. We're talking righteousness. We're talking about conforming our lives to the will of the father. It's putting ourselves there and our desires and our longings and our passions are what his are. It's Christ likeness. Blessed are those who want to be like Jesus, who are desperate, who are starving to be like him. Whose appetite is that? And here's the thing about appetites. Appetites can get way messed up. They just can. You can feed appetites and they will get all twisted. You feed kids Oreos too much, I promise you, they won't eat anything else. They want Oreos. Just give me an Oreo. Well, I grew up in a home, and to this day I rise up and call my mom blessed because of it, where we drank real milk. I mean the good stuff. I mean the whole, thick, creamy, cold milk. I mean, it was good. And, 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 I, and my entire life, up till I was 18, I didn't know anything else existed. I mean, it was just milk. It was good milk. And then I went to college. And at college, they served this stuff. And it looked kind of like water with glue in it. And I learned later that it was called skim milk. Okay. Now, I had never heard nor seen of this, this foreign thing to me. We drank real milk in my house. But after four years, and that's all I had, guess what? I learned to like this stuff. And I'm sad to say to this very day, 15 years later, I still drink it. Once in a while, I'll hit one of those IHOPs or a Waffle House, and I'll go back to the glory days and get me a glass of the good stuff. And I'll think, wow, thank you, mother, and drink it. But see, my appetite was messed up. I was drinking the good stuff, and now I'm drinking this watered-down Elmer's glue stuff. What happened? My appetite. I started feeding on it. I started liking it. And here's the thing about Christians. If you feed on the filth of the world, you will start craving it. You will. You will start liking it. You will start striving after it. And you will continue to feed yourself on that skim milk. And you'll be missing out on the glory of the whole. And you've got to ask yourself right now, what do you crave for? What do you long for? What are you striving for? Because I can tell you this, there's a sin nature that always strives for sin. I get that. But most of our cravings are because we have developed an appetite for it. You've developed an appetite for that, that kind of entertainment. You have developed an appetite for that kind of relationship. You have developed it for that kind of striving. 
And I can promise you this on the authority of Scripture and what Jesus says. If you will strive after the things of the world, you will, you will get them and you will always be hungry. You will always be wanting more and it will never be enough. And you can want good things. I want a degree. I want a job. I want a wife. I want a kid. I want a physical relationship with a spouse. I want money. I want success. I want popularity. I want to be healthy. Those are good things. God has given all perfect and good things because he is the father of lights. But if you strive after those and not after him, you will always be drinking skim milk and you will always be hungry. Always. But... If you strive after him and his will to be done and him, his characteristics and his attributes in your life, then you will be satisfied whether you get these things or not. See, what are you striving and what are you striving for? Some of you are eating spiritual Oreos and the only way to change your appetite is to stop eating them and then to start tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And it might take time, but you will change your, ad- your appetite so you start longing for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in regards to your salvation. That's how you change your appetite and start longing for the things of God. And you get into a biblical community and get into the word of God. And I'm not talking about a biblical community that's online. It's like, oh, I went to the mall today. Oh, I like that. Maybe it pushed the button. Oh, isn't that nice? That's not biblical community. That's not longing for the... I mean, how, how much time do we start longing for the sitcoms? And how many time do we spend longing for the pure milk of the word? How much time do we spend on the computer? Updating our status. How much time in biblical community? How much time with our children? Okay? That, that's what we're talking about. It's an appetite. It's an appetite that needs to, in some of your cases, be changed. Because you will always be hungry. You'll always be drinking that nasty glue stuff. Instead of the richness of what God offers. Because he says, blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. What's the promise? They'll be satisfied. You'll be, the word is a great word. It, it, it's actually kind of a morbid word. In Revelation, it's used of these, these vultures who can, at the Battle of Armageddon, they stuff themselves because everyone's dead and they just can't eat anymore. That's the same word. They are just, go, it's like going to CeCe's and you have to say, oh, I went to CeCe's, praise the Lord, I'm full. That's, that's kind of the idea. They can't have any more. They will be satisfied. They'll be satiated. It'll be completely satisfied. But here's the great thing about God. The more you hunger... The more you want, the more you want, the more you're satisfied. You'll never walk away from God hungry. Never. He said, you'll always be full. That's what he wants from his people. Those who long for righteousness in our lives, for him to take those bad spiritual Oreos and to replace them with that pure milk, to see his will on earth be done, his will in our life. Blessed are those people who long for that. Blessed for those people who don't long for those other things. Blessed are the humble. The kingdom is theirs right now. Blessed are those who mourn because the comfort is here and it always will be. Blessed are those who are gentle and meek, who wait for the Lord. Their inheritance is enormous. Blessed are those who hunger and long to be like Jesus because they'll be satisfied. To be continued. Next week, dot, 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 part two, right? But as we move to worship, this is what I want you to see. If you think, well, I'm going to go out the door and be gentle today. I'm going to go out the door and be humble. 
I'm going to go hunger for righteousness. I'm going to read my Bible. Then you miss the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is you cannot do this on your own. That the Lord Jesus can through you and in you. And it starts with being poor in spirit and saying, Lord, I want to be this. I want to be this. Because this, this Sermon on the Mount, let's be honest, is Jesus. Isn't it? It's Jesus. Who was poor in spirit? Jesus. Who was gentle? Jesus. Who mourned? Jesus. Who hungered and thirsted for his Father's will to be done? Jesus, thy will be done. And that will led him up Mount Calvary and onto a cross for you and me. This is Jesus. And the only way you can be like him is if you submit yourself to him and ask him and let him fill you and let him move in you. And this is going to be a time for us to reflect on that and worship. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. What a great day to be able to do it. And we're going to pass it out. And here's how we're going to do. If you are a Christian and you've put your faith in the gospel and you understand that he died for your sins, he died in your place and he rose again, and, and that's you, we invite you to partake. And you say, well, I've had a bad week. I just, uh, good. That means you're ready because you're poor in spirit. If you come in here and say, well, I've had a good week. I did my quiet time. You're not ready because you're not poor in spirit. Because nobody is worthy for the table, but all are invited. All those who have experienced forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so if that's you, we invite you to celebrate. The men are going to pass it out. They're going to hand it to you. We're going to sing some songs. When you feel like you've prayed, when you've searched your heart, when you've worshipped and you're ready to partake, then you take right there in your seat where you are. You'll have both elements at the same time as they pass out. And then we'll stand together and we'll continue to worship. This is a time to reflect on the king as his followers. To be poor in spirit. To mourn over sin if there is some to hunger and thirst for him. And so let's do that together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word, the, the pure milk of the word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. It is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would take it and move in your people. Turn us into those who are poor in spirit, Mourners, but longers for you, hungry for you, gentle. I pray for this time of worship as a body, um, Lord Jesus, that it would be a special time where we can just confess to you and remember you and, and think of your cross and think of your return and your kingdom and your promises, inheritance, children of God, heirs of the kingdom, comfort, satisfaction. What great promises you've given us. And we know that every word you speak is true because you are truth. And so we long for it. And say, even come, say, even so come, Lord Jesus. If today, awesome, if in a thousand years, we just want to be found faithful. Faithful subjects of your faithful kingdom.